welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Well, welcome. Today on the show, I have Ashley Murphy, founder of the Global Financial Planning Institute. Ashley is a well-known cross-border planner specializing in US-Australian cross-border, but has also expanded more recently into helping educate advisors and people about the challenges of planning across borders. And with that, here's my interview with Ashley. Ashley, thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you, Jason. Yes. And we have quite the contrast going on right now because you are in surface paradise with just basically the most beautiful weather imaginable. And I am in the middle of a Toronto snowstorm, which for those of you listening in the States, it does not happen every day. It's not always snowing. So let's move on. So Ashley, tell us about a little bit of what it is you do. Absolutely. So um, really, really two things here, but let me focus on the Global Financial Planning Institute. So I am the founder of the Global Financial Planning Institute. It's an organization founded to provide community education, resources, and ongoing support for financial advisors and, and other financial professionals working cross borders. I'm also an advisor, have been for a decade, a little over a decade actually, where I work with Australian American expats, so Aussies in the US and Americans in Australia. Excellent. So You've been, I mean, you you carved yourself out a niche uh, years ago. I mean, you also, I mean, I've even heard you, I mean, we know each other for a couple of years now. You were on the XYPN radio podcast talking about that niche in, in particular. So anyone, I'll try to link to that. So anyone who wants to learn more about your practice can learn there. But in particular, I brought you on the show to talk about the challenges of basically handling planning across borders. And this is something that I don't think the average person has any idea of just how convoluted it can get. They seem, like I say, like I almost get frustrated when I think, when I see people treat borders as if they're just imaginary lines, there's massive repercussions. So talk to me a little bit about why you got into this space and how you help people in that scenario. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this space and how you help people in that scenario. Okay, absolutely. Well, I, I first feel prompted to respond to, to what you said there. And that is, I think you and I, Jason, have a strong feeling and mission towards educating the advisory community that this is not merely some, some small belt-mounted toolkit of practices or issues that one can simply apply when, when dealing with a, an international cross-border client. It's a whole different specialty altogether. And so you and I, no doubt, both keep a close uh, ear to the ground for articles that we see out there. And I was drawn to an article just earlier this week in wealthmanagement.com, and it was talking about, you know, here are the things you need to know about international and cross-border planning. And it was it dealt with two issues. I mean, two very superficial issues. And it just reminds me that there's rarely even the airspace, the airtime given to thinking about these issues and what, what it all might encompass. But anyway, that all being said, how did I get into this? You know, really the, this situation was, I was born into it, to be honest. So I'm a tribe citizen, born, I was born in the UK, raised in Australia uh, to an American mother. And so I, I moved to the US. And to Way to complicate your life from birth. Okay, I keep yeah. going. <laughs> How it happened then. That's how it happened. <laughs> so these issues have all, always been with me. When I moved to the US, I just figured that I'm certainly not one of a kind. You know, there's there's thousands, perhaps maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands with with triple citizenship, but certainly tens of millions or even hundreds of millions, perhaps, with dual citizenship. So this is a pretty common 
issue. It's updated research on it to, to see that there are, in fact, tens of millions of such individuals in the US. So it really is incredibly common. So 2005, moved to the US and thought, well, gosh, there's got to be books, resources, there's got to be somewhere to go to find out about the issues that pertain to, to these individuals. There wasn't. There was nothing I could find. I didn't you know, have anything like the, uh, the resources at my disposal then, as I do now. But I think you might have been in the room. I actually remember the very first meeting, Denver, uh, FPA 2010. I wasn't there for that one. I wasn't there for that one. I apologize. <laughs> After that. So I remember feeling this is this is my crowd. Like this is my crowd. There were folks from from all over the world there and, and they were dealing with purportedly dealing with international cross-border issues. And I really had my tail between my legs. I was mindful. I was the least experienced person in the room. You know, I'd been in the business by that point for all of six months, still studying to work on CFP. So I was a, an earnest student uh, and, and trying to figure out what these people knew. But after, I would say, five years participating in this knowledge circle, I realized, and actually having been told that there were organized programs that the, the FPSB had instituted for cross-border certification and or initiatives that other planners uh, had underway, eventually enough time went by where I figured these programs are not occurring. I did my own research and found out that the mentor of mine who was well-placed to know such things who had spoken about these FPSB initiatives was in fact incorrect. And so it's something that, that led to, it took a tremendously long time to prove that there wasn't anything there. My father-in-law has a great example. He's a, he was a cancer doctor and he gave this example of when they give test results back, they can say, we found no evidence of cancer. That's very different from saying there is no cancer. No at cancer. All. Yeah. And that's the situation I found myself in is someone has said there are resources out there. Well, to prove that statement wrong, you've got to look under every rock, you know, turn over every stone, look in every cave, go everywhere to show that that is in fact incorrect. And I think think I've done it. And it was that. And I, I probably came to that realization, I'd say three or four years ago. And it was at that point where I said, I get it. There are structural forces preventing an initiative from getting off the ground to provide this kind of education. And I'm, I'm very pleased to say that that's now, um, some of those issues have been resolved. So, you know, we, we have support from the FPA and also from that very mentor that made that comment about <laughs> the FPSB and the initiatives mm -hmm. that, they, that they had in place, he's actually now a member of the Financial Planning Institute himself. So it's been interesting. It's been a political sea change and it's been reassuring. Excellent. So basically what you're doing is you're spending your time now split between your normal day job, which is being a financial planner and educating planners on these issues. So let's focus in on these issues and how they come about. I mean, I like to describe it and I'll start off and you can, you can edit as, as you'd like, but I always say that when you're dealing with, with cross-border issues, especially when someone's a U.S. citizen, you're dealing with two different playbooks. And one of them is written in one language, and one's written in another language. And there's this little translation piece called the cross-border treaty that doesn't actually address that much. And you're left looking at, hey, this works here, but then you got to verify, has it been addressed? And if not, does it work in the other on the other playbook? And you, I don't have to tell you about the convoluted nature of U.S. tax code, but this can be a challenge. So, I mean, that's how I sum it up, is that you're, you're playing by two different rule books. And unfortunately, what works here doesn't necessarily work in the other one. Yeah, that's exactly it. And another, another dimension to add to that is enforcement. You know, so the, mm. the U.S. has the, the most complicated tax code in the world. We, we all know that. And that's partly based on it, or it's, if not entirely based on it, being a rules-based system as opposed to 
in Australia and the UK, perhaps Canada is similar in that regard. I don't know. But in Australia, it's it's a principles-based system. So yeah, I've got an example I'm fond of giving where a high net worth client who, who had some stock options moved back to Australia. Lo and behold, there was some law I'd never heard of before called TOFA that was to do with tax and gains on foreign exchange held in bank accounts. And with my US-centric view of, of looking at tax, I said, hey, we don't have anything to worry about. We're holding this in an investment account. It's not a bank account. And that's that would be the right interpretation in the US. It's it, right there in the law. It says this affects bank accounts. Now, when I engaged with counsel in Australia, they said, no, no, no. <laughs> they said, it might say bank accounts, but what they really mean is any other account where you're holding these funds in, in a cash manner. So to go back to your analogy, yes, absolutely. That, that's exactly an accurate characterization. It's as if it's written in two, two different languages. And we've got uh, to borrow from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We've got that translating worm that operates between these two languages. Babelfish is Babelfish. Yep. But the Babelfish is only capable of interpreting half of, of what actually comes through. And so it's a very unusual situation where, and of course, my expertise really pertains just to that Australia US context, where you can literally shop for the opinion that you want. You know, outside of those very few areas where there, there is a settled and agreed upon interpretation, you can actually shop for the opinion that you want. And of course, it's really dependent upon the, the risk tolerance of the advisor and the client as to what they want to do. But outside of that, outside of subtle law, that's the, the, the Wild West. That's the, the situation we operate in. And it's, it's that context that adds another another element to the mission that, that the GFP Institute has, and that is to see things settled. Because obviously tax treaties weren't written in such a way for the users of the treaty to get superior outcomes to what domestic residents in either country would get. And yet there are some circumstances where you see, again, of course, it's always going to be Aussies that I refer to, but Aussies that are able to get out of the US and pay no taxes or very, very little taxes on their retirement savings in a completely legitimate manner because of how the tax treaty works and how the Australian tax laws work and you know when they deem Australian tax residency to resume and they give a step up in basis to the position of the, the date that the tax residency resumes. So that's another another goal is to see harmony and standardization and, and, and equity introduced globally so that markets function and tax systems function for, for everyone. Boy, I mean, it's... Uh... It's it's another utterly frustrating avenue sometimes. I mean, it's 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 a great little niche for advisors to cut out because frankly, the level of complexity is such that it takes a lot of investment and time to actually get good at this stuff. But at the same time, it is fraught with peril for those who who tread, who don't tread carefully. So with that, I kind of want to, you know, let's take this back to just general advice. Where are the biggest areas that people trip up in your mind? Like what are the big kind of common screw-ups that people who live across borders or travel or just basically move across borders that they commonly end up seeing the most agony? It's a fantastic question because it actually goes back to the initial question and the point that I made about enforcement. So the most common issue I would say would be to do with tax reporting. So FBAs and, and FATCA and that kind of thing. Now, yeah, sorry, just to stop you there, just so anyone's listening who's not aware of this, just to be 100% clear. The U.S., unlike every other country in the world, with the exception of Eritrea, I believe, tax is based on citizenship, not residency, which means it, when you leave Canada or Australia, you file an exit return, I take it, in Australia, and then you're done. And unless you have assets that remain in Australia or Canada, you don't have to file with that tax authority anymore. In the U.S., it doesn't matter if you live on Mars, you're filing with the IRS. 
That's right. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be assessed U.S. tax. In, in fact, rarely in the countries that we look at in the GFP Institute does that actually happen unless it's U.S. sourced income, which is a different topic, but it is an issue. And so th there is, first, you have to be assessed and you have to report. So there's informational reporting on, on accounts held abroad. And then there's also just filing that U.S. tax return so that the U.S. can be sure that they are, in fact, receiving their, their fair share. Well, fair should really be in, in quotes, right, given, given what you just said, Jason. <laughs> so, yeah, no one so, likes paying money to a government that they're not actually getting any benefit from necessarily. So let's... Uh, it's never never pleasant. So the issues that trip people up are the tax reporting, as I was just mentioning. Another one would be what's called PFIX, passive foreign investment companies. So that is a very protectionist measure that the U.S. has introduced in 1986 Tax Reform Act, where essentially if a U.S. person, and I use that term to refer to U.S. taxpayers, so that could be a citizen, a permanent resident, or even a, a tax resident of the U.S., so someone there on a visa, they, if they own a, an investment vehicle overseas that is a, deemed to be a PC, the Passive Foreign Investment Corporation, and there's a couple tests that apply to that, but basically any foreign mutual or managed fund or ETF or REIT, then it's going to be taxed at a, at a very high and punitive rate. And, and so we see a lot, of, a lot of folks unwittingly stepping into that. But it goes back to what I said before, and that is to do with enforcement. So while these are absolutely on the books and apply to individuals, the fact that the sheriff is kind of asleep at switch changes things. You know, I, I like to use the analogy of anyone who's been in Northern California to say it, the U.S. is the enforcement is a lot like enforcement of the speed limits on Highway 101, where if you're doing the speed of traffic, you're suspicious because no one's doing the speed. Everyone's driving 10 miles over the limit. But the, the, yeah. the question remains, could you be booked if you're driving 10 miles over the limit? You're driving the speed of traffic. And the answer is absolutely yes, you can. It's just, you're going to be really unlucky if that, if that happens. However, as advisors, all we can do is recommend that our clients fully follow the law. And that's, of course, what, what we recommend. Then we come up against a culture of ignorance, naivety, and non-compliance, where People say, well, I've never heard of that before. You know, none of my friends do this. So what are you talking oh, about? Oh, God, I, I get well. that all the time. So in particular, in particular, I will say this, having to deal with, um, you know, being of Portuguese descent and having uh, many, uh, several clients, a handful of clients who, old school guys who basically go and go back every year for like six months, which already they're offside on residency. None of my friends are reporting this. Well, I don't care what your friends are like. Like if, if your child said that to you, would you basically take that as an excuse? <laughs> like it's not going to happen. And, yeah. That's what I mean by the speed of like doing the speed of traffic. Like, hey, why you why did you pull me over, officer? I was doing what everyone else is doing. Doesn't make it legal. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And it's uh, it's interesting too. So, you know, the, the policeman may be a little bit asleep, but I have I have a different viewpoint on this to some degree, and that that's for now, right? Because I mean, if you yeah. look at I was at a I was at a society of trust and estate planners conference a couple of years back where someone posed the question of do you think we're heading to a global enforcement regime for taxation? And surprisingly, like in a room of like eight hundred people, I was one of like ten hands that went up and I'm like, Are you guys not paying attention? And he basically made the case for what we required in terms of information sharing, in terms of I mean, like it's it's all solely Happening. The only thing that's not happening at this point is one one jurisdiction collecting another jurisdiction's tax revenue on their behalf. So there's that. And then you know the other points I've, I've heard made is that you know the U.S. with all this stuff that they put together, like they don't even have time to go through all their FBAR forms. Like they just warehouse them at this point. And I've heard of stories of entire warehouses full of paperwork. And my response is that's that's nice. They're 
why do you think they're holding on to it? Because in my opinion, it's a matter of time before they throw an artificial intelligence algorithm at it and and pop up all the, the violators. Yeah. And that's the best answer that I had. We, we had a fantastic guest speaker last year for, for our masterclass program who was a tax attorney at Withers, a venerated global tax law firm, amongst other specialties. And that was the answer that she gave. She said, yes, the IRS has been defunded over a period of many years. Yes, there are fewer audits. But she said there doesn't need to be as many audits. These non-compliance notices can be sent automatically and the IRS is investing very heavily in artificial intelligence, and they know the suspicious yeah. transactions that they, they want to flag. So and, and there's I a lot of fewer people true. working in farming over the last 100 years, too. I mean, it doesn't mean that just because they're def- they're funded less than there's fewer people doesn't mean that they can't automate the heck out of that. And you know what? I guarantee you there's some Silicon Valley companies figuring out how to apply that technology to the tax yeah, reporting. And the IRS would be willing to pay hand of a fist for it because, you know, they, they run a business as much as uh, they're hoping that their, their revenue exceeds their expenses. And if exactly. ever there was an investment that they could make, that has to be it. You know, hey, we'll spend $100 million on some AI software and we'll get billions of dollars in penalties that we are owed, you know, as per the law. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that precipitated my need to learn more about cross-border was when the U.S. actually started to crack down on, I think it was probably, it was around probably 2008, when they started to crack down on non-resident Americans and they increased the reporting through FACTA and everything else. And so I, you know, very quickly had to educate myself because we, we discovered that more than 20% of the client base had U.S. tax exposure. So, you know, I looked at, looked at got involved in all that. And quickly discovered just, oh my God, there's so much non-compliance out there. And most people have no idea what is going on. It is a ticking time bomb for a lot of these people, quite honestly. Absolutely. Well, you know, that's the thing, Jason, is I go back to brain function and evolution when I think about the propensity of the average individual to engage in planning. I mean, it's a higher order function that the humans have to even think of the future and think about what's coming. And the fact is that most people just simply don't. I mean, they just don't. I don't know what percentage of the population, let's call it 80% of the population just don't engage in planning in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. That's saying that our addressable market is immediately reduced by a significant amount. But then secondly, something, the pain has to be significant enough for someone to pick up the phone or write an email and, and make an inquiry in the first place. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually addressing your former point in a different manner. So where do we get a lot of inquiries from? Where do they originate from? They mostly originate from stranded retirement accounts. So someone's got tens of thousands yeah. of dollars. They know they're going to get hosed if they try and distribute it without, without advice, without doing the right thing. And that's when they pick up the phone. The problem is for practitioners where there's a, a market failure is I have a boutique firm. There's one, one of me. I've got a couple staff, but essentially there's one of me. And so if someone's coming along with a very focused, very specific question, I don't have the capacity to take on those kind of clients. Mm. So there's a problem. How do those people get advice if there's no one out there offering that specific advice? And it really does need to be specific. As you alluded to with your analogy earlier that I've built upon with the the Babel fish, every single bilateral or pairwise country combination is going to be different. And, and that's what's led to me taking a more strident view with, uh, with other planners I get talking to, where they may be interested in becoming, you know, in their own heads, they're saying, I'll become an international planner and I'll help, people, I'll help this amorphous group I hear about called expats. And I'm really coming down on that and saying, it doesn't work. I don't think you can have a profitable business, one that you, you would actually want or, or, or anyone would want to buy 
if all you're doing all day long is working with different expats from different places all the time, because you would essentially be a research service if that's what you're doing. You know, you can never- And you're going to get it wrong. There's no, like, there's no, it's beyond cognitive ability. I mean, like, come on, like any one country's tax code is enough of a strain. You throw in a second, third, fourth, like, ah, just, just, it's brutally painful. I mean, it's, there is something to be said for simplifying one's life to when dealing across borders as much as possible. But yeah, if someone's going to tell you that I deal with cross-border in seven different countries, I would just laugh. Exactly. And maybe they could, there was a student we had last year who who had this vision in his head of moving down to Latin America and dealing with retirees. And I thought, you know what, that I could imagine. I, I mean, I'm, I'd say I'm being generous. I could imagine if you said, I know Mexico, Costa Rica, and maybe one other country's retirement issues and that's yeah. tax and retirement. And that's it. And you didn't yeah. say, I know everything to know about. What if we accrue stock options in one country and you know and and go? Oh God, stock options. You just talk, you just you just drop the 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 time bomb every time stock options get involved. It's like this is going to end poorly because it just never never dealt with anywhere in a tax code. Uh, sorry, in a cross border yeah. treaty, and it's just brutal. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean I I can see that if you simplify it down to just retirement accounts, I'm sure you can build a knowledge base. But I mean, like I mean, hey, I mean I live in a different world. I, you know, Canada's the benefactor of of the largest number of U.S. expats, so there's enough of a market here to just do that. In fact, I know a handful of people who specifically, and you know them too, who basically uh, specialize in nothing but that. And they do quite well. But it's it's something that, frankly, not enough advisors know about. And the ones yeah. who, and actually, I think just in general, as lax as cons- as consumers are about the need or the the moving between borders on this stuff, I'd say that the advisory industry is equally as lax, if not worse off, because there's a higher duty of care there. And I still remember sitting in a meeting with an, an advisory board meeting with advise- with other advisors in 2012 and going on about the need for PFIC reporting about something. And one of the advisors was like, when did this happen? I don't know, like six years ago. And they're like, well, I've never heard of it. This is the first time I've heard of it. I'm like, dude, yeah. there's been so many newspaper articles and like articles in in our own publications. Like, what do you read all day? Right. Like, so it's it's just, I thought to myself, my God, like how much, how offside are so many of his clients now because of this? Absolutely. And that's the thing is I gosh, where to start with this? I I, I could I could give an hour-long lecture just on that very point you raised. I think the the problem is the advisors have an economic incentive to work with whoever they can and and fluff their way through it. I get yeah. it all the time. Literally woke up today to two inquiries. Hey, I've got an Aussie expat. Can I work with you on an hourly basis for you just to inform me about what I need to know so that I can continue working with the client? And it's not that I, I am opposed to advisors continuing to work with their own clients who happen to be Aussie expats. It's that there's so much to know and that the fact finding, I mean, from the very beginning, if you haven't collected information about their immigration patterns and you don't know the visas or their, uh, when they applied for a green card, you're off to a poor start. So the trouble there is there's an economic incentive advisors have to continue working with clients. There's a lack of enforcement, certainly from a regulatory point of view. In the US, we're, we're cursed with, with regulations that were written in, the, in the, the aftermath of the Great Depression that are focused singularly on the investment. Literally. They don't have anything to do with financial planning at all. And so we're left with this toothless tiger known as the CFP board who have as standard, what is it, A13 is competence, which, which says yeah. you must be competent in the area in which you're practicing to provide that, that advice. Well, like I said, toothless tiger. Has anyone ever heard of that being enforced? Ever? I mean, ever. 
And so that it, all of these things bring it all together. And, and I think I'm beginning to paint a picture as hazy as my vacation mind is, uh, is doing here and, and, and struggling to, 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 to string words together. I think you're beginning to see why there is a need for something like the GFP Institute you know, to provide that education and to, to make it accessible and to try and lower the barriers to entry for folks trying to I get that. It's, it, it's funny, the number I often say, it's, it's what's quite amusing is the number of people who claim to do cross-border financial planning in my country and the very small number of us who actually have CFPs on both sides of the border. It's quite amusing. Lots more people with Series 7's license, licenses in the US, in, in Canada, but not a lot of, of CFP, dual CFPs. So uh, we'll, um, which by the way, anyone listening who's an advisor, there's a fast track if you want to do that. It's Anyway, email me. Mm -hmm. So, okay, now that we've scared everyone, uh, specifically consumers. Uh, and by the way, this is a podcast primarily for, for business owners. And I'll tell you right now, if you're dealing with business, if you're a business owner with, you know, cross-border issues, I, I hope you're really getting the right advice because my God, there's so many ways to screw that up even worse than the average individual. Now that that we've, we've scared everyone, let's talk about where to find help. So there's no one repository of like a database that basically points to all cross, you know, cross-border situations. If someone is looking for advice on basically multi-jurisdictional planning, what is your advice for what they should look out for and the kind of questions they should ask of that person? Yeah. Wow. What a great question. And you're going to have to forgive me for being a little self-serving in my answer, but I'm going to try and answer it as, as impartially as I can. So the, the way I would do that today would probably be the way I answered the same question from a good high, uh, not high school, university friend of mine who's been incredibly successful. He started a global uh, spirits company, well, spirits, non-alcoholic spirits company that has been incredibly successful. And so he called me up about a year ago and he said, gosh, Ash, I need to, to help. I need some help finding someone who knows about you know, the UK, Australia, and the US. Where should I go? And I said, the way I would do that would be a circuitous, a circuitous search starting with STEP, going to the Society of Trust and Estate Planners. Now, the trouble you'll have with STEP is inherent right there in the name. You're looking for financial mm -hmm. planning advice and you're asking estate planners. However, this is an incredibly international group, probably the most international group of all of the, if you could, financial and legal services groups that, that I know of. They are going to be connected because that's their business. They're going to be connected to the lawyers, the tax lawyers, to the private bankers, and to the specialist financial advisors that know those particular cross-border combinations. So that was the answer that I gave him. But the trouble with STEP, Jason, as, as you would know, is it really veers sort of high net worth. The trust uh -huh. Oh, absolutely. Plan, they only get really really excited about these, these multi-jurisdictional trust structures, you know, when there's tens of millions of dollars involved. And so for the mass affluent or the folks under, let's say, $10 million in net worth, it's going to be a bit more challenging because that step member, you know, that person whose who's hourly rate is $800 an hour, they're not so inclined to take a call if there isn't some, forgive the graphic expression, if there isn't some meat on the bone, if they uh -huh. can't see a, a juicy prospect, then they're going to say, hey, I'm, I don't have time for this. I'm sorry. So again, uh -huh. another market failure that, that, that I identify. So where would you go? You would, there's, there's a couple of places. There, there would be the, the FPA, the US FPA's uh, International Cross-Border Knowledge Circle. However, there is no centralized repository of who does what, nor their qualifications. So yep. where else could you go? You could go to, you know, I think, uh, look at how someone is incentivized and you'll understand their conflicts and, and see how their advice is, is shaped. So for that reason, I tend to veer towards fee-only in the US, maybe you call it fee-only in, in Canada or fee-for-service or something like that, probably something similar, uh, I'm sure, Jason. But looking at someone like XYPN, XY Planning Network, 
in the US or NAPFA, those advisors tend to be a bit more principled and they will really do some shopping around. You know, you'll see, I see on their forums, you know, every week, does anyone know anyone who blah, 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 fill in the blank. But it was identifying this particular shortcoming that we're talking about right now that led to the initiative that, that we're launching with the GFP Institute. And that is where there is a find an advisor search tool that would work very similar to how steps, steps tool works, where you could say, I am in this country. I am seeking a professional you know, with expertise in this other country who has specific knowledge of business owners or retirement plans or whatever the case may be. So we're building that out. In fact, one of our members just asked about that yesterday and said, what's the timeline for that release? We're looking at late February for that. But we're also limited by, you know, I don't want to tout that it's any kind of exhaustive database at one time as our membership is, is growing. And it's only through bringing cross-border planners together making sure that they satisfy a minimum standards of, of expertise, you know, that we're able to say, you know, we're, we're making this, we're not guaranteeing any referral, but we're making it pretty confidently that this person knows what they're talking about because we've tested them. You know, we know that they have a minimum competence to provide some advice. Excellent. So uh, good. I mean, they give us some, some uh, options. I'll also plug the um, two associations I'm on the board of in this country, the Financial Planning Association of Canada and the Institute for Advanced Financial Planners. There are a handful of cross-border planners there that are credentialed or qualified that we, some of those search uh, functions will help you find them. Otherwise, contacting the group is also valuable. So uh, before we sign off, Ashley, where can people find you and learn more about the uh, both cross-border planning and what it is you're trying to accomplish with the uh, association. Absolutely. The institute. Yeah. Uh, GFP.institute. And yes, .institute is a uh, <laughs> a web suffix that, that's now used. Yep. So GFP, Global Financial Planning.institute. And that, that will talk about the mission of the GFP, the masterclass. And then for private clients, that would be arete, A-R-E-T-E hyphen W-A.com. So that's for, for Aussies in America or Americans in Australia. Excellent. Ashley, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for all that you do, Jason. <laughs> My pleasure. So that was today's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you got the message that, frankly, and we try to beat it into your heads quite frequently on this one, is get help, especially especially if you're dealing across borders, because the convoluted nature in which uh, <laughs> that uh, entire domain works is, is not for the faint of heart. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.